The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Let's pray. Lord, you are gracious and you're kind. Lord Jesus, we celebrate you this weekend. It's been a busy season. It's been a busy time for us all. Uh, we're thankful, Lord, for your birth, and we're thankful for the opportunity yet again to just pause and reflect on the story of your birth and the impact that it has had on the world around us and the impact that it's had in our own hearts and our own lives. We pray this morning, Lord, that as we look at your word and as we sing these wonderful carols of the Christmas season, Lord, that you would just draw near to us in this place, that you would make yourself through your word come alive to us afresh and anew. And that you might, um, Lord, just inspire us even more to love you more than ever, to serve you more than ever, to share the good news of your birth more than ever. I thank you for those who've come this morning. Bless our time of worship. May it be pleasing to you today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this morning, instead of sort of a normal uh, order of service, we're going to do something a little different. One of the things that I think is so beautiful and wonderful about the Christmas season is the music that accompanies the season. It's interesting, there's a whole set of songs that we only sing this time of year. They celebrate the birth of Christ, and it seems like December comes around, we sing the songs, and about this time they shut off and we go back to everything else we sing until another December rolls around yet again. Uh, the songs are beautiful, and the songs lead us into the worship of our Lord as we reflect on the text of Scripture. So many of the Christmas carols reflect and nuance the, the text of, of the Christmas story itself. And as we finish up our look this morning at Luke chapter 2 in Luke's account of the birth of Christ, we're going to do that a little differently. We're going to do that by allowing the songs to sort of lead us through the text this morning. So the way this is going to look is going to be we're going to read a portion of the text, we're going to sing one of the carols together that relates to that text, and then I'll talk a little bit about that text and what it means to us, and then we'll just move right on through the rest of Luke, beginning in verse 12, really to the, to the end of the Christmas story in Luke 9, verse 12, uh, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 19. So if you have your Bible with you, you may want to open it to Luke chapter 2, and, and beginning in verse 12, uh, our praise team is going to be reading the text for us throughout this morning, but you may want to follow along as we, as we work our way through this together this morning. And so we'll begin our time of reading and singing in verse 12 of Luke chapter 2. In case you haven't been with us, we've been looking at Luke's account of the birth of Christ, and we've, we've watched as the angels have appeared to Mary, or the angel Gabriel has appeared to Mary, and, and all that, that was involved with that encounter. And then last week we moved into this encounter with, the, with an angel of the Lord who appears to the shepherds who were out in the field watching their flocks by night, and we talked a lot about shepherds and the implications of that. And uh, we're going to pick up sort of midway through that in verse 12, which is kind of where we left off last week, and uh, we'll sort of pick up our, our exposition there. Uh, but Meredith is going to read verse 12 to us and get us moving into this this morning. Luke 2, verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Such a simple text, right? And a very simple and straightforward instruction from the angels. You'll find the baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. When you look at the sort of, uh, the sort of record of Christmas carols, it's interesting to find that there's not an awful lot of the carols that are about Mary or that even mention Mary, to be honest with you. The one that we'll sing to, together uh, at the beginning here just takes us back to the manger and, and it gives us the sense of the quiet and peacefulness and the joy and wonder of that moment. The song is often falsely attributed to Martin Luther. Best we can tell, Luther didn't write it, that that was sort of a legend that, that went around. It was written somewhere in the mid-1800s by an anonymous American writer. The music's composition, the musical piece of it, is also just as mysterious as the lyrics. We don't know exactly where they emerge. There are several legends that tell us different stories, and it's very, very difficult to sort of pin down exactly where this song came from. But wherever the song came from, whoever the writer was, it's the message that they capture that reflects the peacefulness and the joy and the wonder of the manger in Bethlehem and Mary and Joseph there that captures the heart as we sing this song. So let's stand together and sing Away in a Manger. 
be seated. Well, it's here in the, the manger that we, well, just shy of the manger that we were left off last week in Luke's gospel in verse 12. The angel appears to the disciples, or to the disciples, to the shepherds, and he tells them that there's a sign that they should follow, a sign that they need to be aware of. Well, what was the sign? Well, he had told them already the location of the baby. Do you remember where that was just previous to this? Unto you is born this day where? In the city of David, a savior. So Bethlehem had already been identified as the location of the baby. But there's more that, they needed, to be know, that needed to be known in order for them to locate the baby. So they, they, they know that he's in Bethlehem. They, the only other detail we have is that he's wrapped in swaddling cloths. But this isn't unusual. Any mother who had given birth to a baby, particularly one who was poor and had nothing else, would have used swaddling cloths. So that wouldn't have been particularly uh, easy to, to locate. He gives a more specific location that is really the key to it all. He says, you'll find the babe where? Lying in a manger. In an animal feed trough is where you'll find this particular baby, this Savior, Christ the Lord. If you want to find him, go to Bethlehem, and you'll find him. He's the baby that's, that's lying in the, the feed trough. You say, well, why is that such a sign? It was a very, very specific locator. I mean, if you had any other means... Uh, about you other than a feed trough you would have put your baby somewhere else only someone who didn't have any other place to put a baby would put them in an animal food trough and so likely in Bethlehem certainly in Bethlehem no other child would have been in that particular condition it's interesting to note that the angels don't instruct them to go find Jesus they just simply tell them that here's a sign for you here's a sign for you they don't say go find him. They just lay out the sign. And, and, and the, the, the shepherds are left to decide for themselves if they're going to believe all this. They're left to themselves to decide, is this for real or is it not? They're left for themselves to decide, are we going to drop everything and by faith go after this sign? Are we just going to go back to our shepherding and do what we do every day? They have to decide for themselves. And it's a reminder to us that true faith is really always followed up by action. Faith is, when it's real, when it's genuine, is followed by actions. Our actions in our life, the things that we do, either confirm or deny the faith we claim to have. Our lives are a reflection of the reality of where we stand in the area of faith. True faith, it doesn't come about by human works. We know that from the scripture, right? Faith is a gift of God. It's, it's, it comes to us by God's grace as a gift to be received. However, when we receive that gift of faith, inevitably, it leads to an, an action and to a series of actions that play out in our life from that point forward. And the shepherds have a choice to make. Are they going to believe this? Are they going to seek out after the Savior? Or are they going to reject it and just go back to what they were doing before the angel arrived? What would you do? What would you do? What are they going to do? I don't know, we're going to find out, but there's more before we find out. Verse 13 and 14, Kim's going to read that for us. Tell us about this, Kim. We see in Luke 2, 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What a twist in the story, right? What a twist in the story. One of the songs that captures the, the whole wonder and glory of this moment is the song called Angels We Have Heard on High. It was written by obscure French poets somewhere around 1855. So it's been around for a while. And the, the refrain of the song was literally written by angels, right? It's literally what the angels said or sang on this particular event. And singing the song, particularly the refrain, refrain just it brings a smile to your face. I, I, I dare you as we sing this to not smile as you sing Gloria in Excelsis Deo. You can't help it. It just lifts our hearts heavenward and reminds us of the glory and the wonder of what God was doing on that particular day as announced by these angels. So let's stand together and let's sing Angels We Have Heard on High. See if it brings a smile to your face.
seated. Well, up to this point in the account of the, the shepherds, we've only had one angel that's been on the scene, right? One angel showed up and told them, don't be afraid, I, I bring you good news of great joy. But it doesn't stay that way. In verse 13 and 14, we're told after the immediate angel that showed up gave them the sign of where they would find the baby, simply we're told suddenly there was an, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God. I don't know if your imagination will allow you to go there, but imagine what it was like, first of all, just to see an angel. If that wasn't, if that wasn't phenomenal enough, if that wasn't enough to blow a shepherd's mind, at this particular moment, the heavens literally open up and burst forth in heavenly worship for them to see. Not just one angel, not just two angels, not three or four angels, but a multitude of angels. A multitude of angels praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. It had to have been a show unlike any ever seen by human eyes. The word translated multitude here is literally a Greek word that means 10,000. We don't know if it was exactly 10,000 angels or if it was more or less that amount. But regardless, it was a lot. It was as though the curtain of heaven pulled back for just a moment. And these shepherds, again, outcasts from society, nobody really in their culture, just out in the fields on a normal night watching their sheep, got a glimpse of the armies of heaven praising God and saying glory to God at the highest. I don't know how many it was, but it had to have blown their minds. If you remember and were with us last week, we talked about just how incredible angels are as creatures. They're created by God. They're impressive and they're incredible. They have powers well beyond our own. And the, the, the mere sight of one by a human being is cause for absolute sheer terror. That's the, that is the immediate reaction of everyone who sees an angel. Sheer terror. That's why they always say fear not from the very beginning if they don't want people to be afraid. If one angel can show up at the tomb of Jesus and just the sheer arrival and sight of that angel causes rugged Roman centurions to literally pass out from terror, can you imagine what it must have been like to see a multitude of the heavenly host? To see an army of those creatures in one glimpse must have been beyond comprehension. David Jeremiah says this. He says there was no practical task orientation about this incredible display by the armies of heaven presented to the senses of the least important citizens in the whole province. He's right. There was no task-oriented reason for this to happen. The angels don't give any additional information that the shepherds need, right? There's no practical reason that they needed to show up and to do this. I think what they were doing and what they were saying really gives us a clue as to why this happened. What is the first thing we're told that they're doing? They're praising God, right? The, 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 the curtain pulls back and the multitudes of angels are not there to talk to the shepherds like the first angel was. They're there to do nothing other than praise God. It is a, a spontaneous outburst of pure joy from the angels in heaven over the salvation that God is bringing to earth. Glory to God in the highest. It was a heavenly de demonstration, if you will, of the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of the gospel, you might think initially, is simply just to save sinners, and certainly saving sinners is part of the purpose of the gospel, but it's the means and not the end. The end of the gospel is to bring glory to God. And God is glorified every time a sinner is saved, for sure. But the glory of God is what's at stake. And the glorification of God is the whole point and purpose of the gospel going out. That men and women like you and like me, sinners, might hear the gospel and be saved. And in doing so, magnify the grace and magnify the love and magnify the mercy of Almighty God. And glorify Him for who He is and what He's done.
Every time a sinner is saved, God's love is magnified. His mercy is magnified. His goodness is magnified. And for the angels, that is a cause for celebration. It seems we don't have time to really track this this morning, but it seems like the angels have had at least some awareness of God's intention to save men for quite some time. They had seen the fall of man. They had witnessed those things from heaven's perspective. They certainly knew Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, from all eternity and were well acquainted with his character and nature. They knew God had a plan for man's salvation. But what seems unclear is that they may not have known exactly how all that was going to unfold in time. And here, in this moment, they're seeing the unfolding of God's redemptive plan. The second person of Trinity being born in human flesh to redeem humankind. And as they see God's plan for redemption unfold, it's like heaven bursts forth with praise and glory to God. They can't hold back the praise. Seeing the beauty and the wisdom and the simplicity of the Father's plan unfold is a cause for celestial celebration. And for some reason, God pulls back the curtain and gives the shepherds a glimpse of what that must have looked like. But it wasn't just their appearance that was important, right? It was their message. Beyond glorifying God, there was something else that they were doing. They had a message that they were speaking, and that message was followed up by glory to God in the highest, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Incidentally, I should have mentioned this. It doesn't say they were singing these things. It says they were saying them. They could have been saying them in tune. We don't know. But whatever, words were coming out of their mouth, and this was the content. And the first part was glory to God, and the second part was on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. This phrase gets bandied about a lot in our culture, in our cultural celebration of Christmas, because people in the culture like to talk about peace, because I think they look around the world and they see such a lack of it everywhere, and they wish that there would be more of it in the world. And somehow the Christmas story causes them to think about what it might be like to have peace among men, or to think about what it might be like to have peace in their own hearts, because the people that we live around are quite often literally overflowing with anxiety and anger and confusion and frustration in their hearts, lacking peace altogether. Peace is something people lack. Peace is something the world lacks. But in sort of our cultural celebration, this part of the text is usually used in some sort of a way to, to reflect or to refer to some sort of peace of mind or peace among men, peace between people. But that's not what the angels have in mind. That's not what the angels are talking about. They're talking about something altogether different. It wouldn't make sense for them to, in fact, be talking about those because none of those things have actually been the, the reality in humankind since they said those words. Since the angels uttered those words, there's never been peace on earth. There's been wars that have raged throughout the generations. There are wars that are raging right now all around the world. We've got folks who are part of our church right now who are deployed with our military in different parts around the world. It's a sign of the fact that there's not peace in the world. If you see how people interact with one another online and in person these days, you understand that there's not a whole lot of peace between people either. People are at war with one another. People are anxious, they're angry, they're confused on the inside now as much as they've ever been, perhaps even more. That's not what the angels were talking about. They were talking about a different kind of peace. It has nothing to do with human conflicts or human wars. It has nothing really to do with sort of that internal peace of mind that we think of sometimes when we hear the word peace. What is the peace they're talking about? The peace that they're talking about is the peace that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Peace with God. It's peace with God that they're talking about. It's peace with God that comes through the reconciliation that's going to be brought by this baby, Jesus, who's been born, who one day is going to die. And he's going to die for the sins of all those who will put their faith and trust in him. The Bible makes very clear, and we talk about this often, that every one of us comes into this world a sinner, right? We know that. Nobody has to tell us that. We're very self-aware of our own sin. We come into this world sinners. We come into this world not at peace with God. 
We come into this world not friends of God. The Bible declares that we come into this world at war with God, in rebellion against him. We are, in fact, his enemies as sinners who rebelled against his holy law. It's only by faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross that sinners, that enemies like us, are reconciled to our maker. Those of us who were at war with him now are at peace because of what Christ has done. Romans 5, 1 says this, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's never going to be peace between men until men are at peace with God. There's never going to be a true peace of mind and heart on the inside of a man or a woman until they are at peace with God. And that only happens by the reconciliation bought by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when the angels say glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he's pleased, they're talking about what's getting ready to happen is God's plan of redemption unfolds and men and women come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and are reconciled with God and the war that they've been waging against their maker comes to an end and peace replaces it. What a remarkable thing. What a remarkable thing to sing about and to celebrate. Well, if you would turn your attention to verses 15 and 16, Keegan is going to recite those for us this morning. Listen as, and read along. Luke 2, 15 and 16 uh, says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. You've probably never heard of, of an individual by the name of Phillips Brooks. He was one of the great preachers, one of the greatest preachers in 19th century America. He was the pastor of Holy Trinity Church in Philadelphia for a number of years. And he led his church literally through one of the bloodiest times in American history, through the, the Civil War. He was, in fact, uh, uh, called and invited to come and, and deliver the message at Abraham Lincoln's funeral service. In 1865, Phillips Brooks, this pastor, was given, a, was given a sabbatical for a year. And he was tasked with going to Europe, and he spent a good bit of time in the Middle East while he was there. And he spent a good bit of time in Israel. And during his time in Israel, Christmas rolled around, and on Christmas Eve, he decided to get away from the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem, and he got a horse. He had not a Chevy or a Honda. He got a horse, and he headed out across the fields toward Bethlehem. And during that Christmas Eve night, he rode through the fields that are likely where the shepherds had been keeping watch over their flocks in this text. And he makes his way to, to Bethlehem, the traditional place, particularly where Jesus was born. And he attends a church service that's taking place there in that little town, which was still a small village in Phillips Brooks' days. Albert Bailey, the hymnologist, says this, says the service was conducted in Constantine's ancient basilica, built over the traditional site of the nativity, a cave. The service lasted, listen with me here, from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. Christmas Eve. 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. I mean, you talk about some serious fanny fatigue by that point, right? They had it by 3 a.m. But he attended this service, and the quiet ride through those fields that night and the service that he witnessed in that particular place, for some reason, those two things came together in his life, and God met him there in those things in a powerful way. And the Christmas story came alive to him like never before. He would later tell his family, try to tell his family and friends about the, the, the impact of that on his life, and he, he said for two years he could never find the right words to be able to express what God did in him that night. And on that particular sequence of events, it was so overwhelming, he said to his family, it will forever be singing in my soul. Two years later, after he returned from home, they needed a Christmas carol for a Sunday school Christmas program of all things, right? Left to the pastor to write the Christmas carol. And finally on this Christmas, the words came to him to describe that night 
and those events from two years earlier. He needed lyrics because he wasn't, he wrote the lyrics, but he needed a, a melody and a tune, so he quickly handed off the lyrics to his church organist, a man by the name of Louis Redner, who was the organist and the church Sunday school superintendent. Who remembers going to church and having a Sunday school superintendent? They were still around when my childhood, right? That's what Lewis Redner was. He struggled as much as Phillips Brooks did in writing the music and said he could never find music to fit the, the lyrics. He literally went to bed on Christmas Eve of that year without any music for this song. But God woke him up in the middle of the night with this tune that we'll sing in a moment ringing in his ears. And he got out of his bed, he rubbed the sleep out of his eyes, and he began to, to pin the, the music to go with the lyrics. And he finished it on Christmas morning just in time for the Sunday school program. Isn't God good? Phillips Brooks once wrote in his sermon this. He said, it's while you're patiently toiling at the little tasks of life that all of a sudden the shape of the great whole of life dawns upon you. Isn't that interesting? It's in the little moments of just toiling about the normal things of life that God opens up the great truths of his word to us and shows us what life really means. I'm sure you've never read a sermon by Phillips Brooks, but you've sung his song hundreds, maybe even thousands of times. So let's add one more time to that by standing and singing A Little Town of Bethlehem. respond to such an angelic army of praise these outcast shepherds certainly had no context for some experience like this nothing like this had ever happened to shepherds so what do you do how do you respond to such a thing well these guys responded by having a little group conversation probably the same thing you would do if you were with a, a gaggle of your friends out in the field and saw something similar right you'd, you'd huddle up pretty quick and say did you see that what was it 
can you imagine the conversation that you'd have? Well, these guys gather up and they decide, what are we going to do? They're processing what they just saw. They're discussing what they need to do next. They had to be shocked and they had to be terrified. They had to be blown away by all this. What in the world had just happened? I mean, it had to have been all so surreal for them. One thing we can see clearly, they believed the message that was delivered to them. You say, how do you know that? Because they dropped everything and they went to find this child. They dropped everything. They'd already been told that a Savior has been born. They had been told that he was Christ the Lord, that he was God in human flesh. And they had been told that he wasn't just any Savior, that he wasn't a Savior that was in general for the world, that he was a Savior for them. The angel told him, for unto you is born a Savior. That there was a Savior that had been born. Christ the Lord, God had come to redeem them. And he could be found. He could be found. These shepherds knew they were sinners. And they knew that they weren't very religious individuals. And they knew that they needed a Savior. So they decided on a course of action, go and see. That was, their, that was their choice. They left the sheep and they went with haste. That word means enthusiasm, with energy, with excitement. They were in a hurry. They dropped what they were doing and they headed to Bethlehem. Now I have no idea what it looks like, the scene in Bethlehem with this little gaggle of, of shepherds running through the city trying to find this baby. I mean, it wasn't like they, the angel gave him an address, right? It wasn't like, you know, third street on the right, second manger, I mean, second stable down or cave, whatever it was. They had to roam through the city and try and find this child. So I imagine them sort of running through the city asking people, do you know if a baby's been born? Are there any babies that have been born here? Where would you find any babies? Did you see anything? Did you hear anything? And I'm sure people are doing then just what people do now when you start asking for directions and things, right? Well, go that way and go this way. You might find them there. I heard something about over there. I'm sure that's what they were doing. And it must have been quite a scene. It must have been something. Whatever their method, however long it took, they found him, just like the angel said. They found him. Can you imagine the conversation between the shepherds and Mary and Joseph when they arrived? That must have been a, a wild conversation. Sharing stories of angelic visits glorying in this baby that was lying right in front of them. You know, the good news of Jesus, the gospel, still is going out. It's usually not delivered these days by angels. It's normally delivered by individual Christians sharing it with somebody else or with ministers who are preaching or gospel singers who are singing it or missionaries who are telling stories about the gospel or Christian school teachers who are teaching their children what it means to know Jesus Christ and others. That's usually how the gospel goes out. And, 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 and people still have a choice when they hear the gospel just like the angels did. Excuse me, just like the shepherds did. You can believe it and you can act on it or you can reject it and just go about your life. But there isn't a third option. There isn't a third option. When you hear the gospel, however it's delivered, you have a choice. You can believe it and receive it and find Christ and be saved. Or you can reject that message and just go about your life, remaining a sinner, an enemy of God, destined for an eternal hell. But to those who respond in faith and they seek after him, they find him, and they're never the same. In Luke chapter 11, a further in the gospel, Jesus, a grown man, said this, I tell you, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks does what? They receive. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it'll be opened. John records the same Jesus in chapter six saying this, all that the Father has given me will come to me and get this, whoever comes to me I will never cast them out. To anybody who responds to the gospel like these shepherds did with faith and in pursuit of Christ, they find him. And he shows himself to them. And they're never the same. Like these men were surely never the same. But they weren't the only ones that were moved by all of this. So was Mary. Verse 19. Rebecca, share with us verse 19. Luke 2, verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. 
There's so much behind that text, right? No way that you could capture the fullness of what was going on inside Mary's heart and words for Luke. This was the best that he would do. She treasured these things up and she pondered them in her heart. There's not a lot of songs that really reflect on Mary. One of the ones that does is the song that we'll sing next, What Child Is This? Written in 1865 by William Chatterton Dix. The lyrics were put together with music, a tune that was really a popular tune from the local pub. It was a popular drinking song called Green Sleeves. So godly lyrics with a drinking song. Let's do it together. What child is this? visit by an angel sometime quite uh, sort of long before this particular event. It was the angel Gabriel, and he had told her some information. He had told her that she was going to give birth to a son as a virgin. He had told her that this son would be the son of God and that he would be the savior of the world and that he was going to be heir to David's throne, that he was going to be the Messiah who was going to be God in human flesh. That was angel, the angel Gabriel had told Mary this long ago. Though this seemed incredible, the angel said, Mary, don't doubt it. Believe me when I tell you this is going to happen because nothing is impossible with God. However, that encounter, in spite of what the angel told her, there must have been so much that she didn't understand, right? There had to be so much of how this was going to unfold that Mary just didn't know, that she had to observe and figure out as it unfolded in front of her. Exactly how was this going to happen? Exactly what would he look like? Would her pregnancy be the same as any other? Or would there be differences when he was born? Would he look just like any other kid? Or would, he, would there be something about his appearance that would let her know that he was indeed who the angel said he would be? Well, by the time we get to this part of the story, he's born. And there's nothing about his physical birth that would give any indication that he was different than any other child. And I'm sure at this point, Mary must have wondered, is this all real? Because he looks just like any other little boy. Despite what the carol we sang earlier said, he did cry like any other, any other baby. There was nothing unusual about his physical appearance or his physical birth. There's so much she didn't understand. 
You may remember by reading, from reading the Gospels that a little bit later on in his life, they go to Jerusalem and, and they go to dedicate him to the Lord and they go in a caravan and they, they leave Jerusalem and somewhere along the trip back, Mary and Joseph realize that they've forgotten something really important, their kid. He's back in Jerusalem. And like any panicked parents, they go running back to find him and they locate him. Where is he located? Well, he's located in the temple. And this conversation between parents and, and child it's probably similar to the conversation you would have, at least from the parents' side of it. Where were you? What were you doing? Don't you know you were scared to death? But Jesus said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And then Luke tells us this, and they, that's Mary and Joseph, they didn't understand the saying that he had spoken to them. They didn't know what he was talking about. They didn't understand the full picture. Mary didn't know exactly what was going on. At the beginning of his ministry, as Jesus goes out and he calls disciples to himself, in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, we're told this, and when his family heard about it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Jesus launches his ministry, and Mary and the rest of the family don't know what's going on. They don't have the full picture. At least in that moment, they thought he was out of his mind. When Jesus was born, Mary must have pondered a lot of things. He wasn't born with a little golden halo on his head. He wasn't born with a t-shirt that said something like, you know, came from heaven and all I brought is this t-shirt. Right? He just looked like any other kid. And Mary must have looked at him and wondered if it was all true. I think that's why this shepherd's visit was such a must have been such a wonderful thing for her, such a wonderful reassurance that what God had told her months and months and months earlier was really true and had really come to pass. I think the visit of the shepherds to Mary was a remarkable example of the grace of God toward her. Though the world didn't notice anything different about the birth of her son, he was not ordinary. He was exactly who Gabriel said he would be. And that was the message that this little band of shepherds came to Mary and reminded her of. He is who he said he is. Mary, he might look like any other baby, but he's not like any other baby. He is the Messiah. He's the Savior. Had to have been a wonderful reminder to her of those words of Gabriel. Nothing is, what? It's impossible with God. Nothing's impossible. Nothing's impossible. That message is just as true today as it was then. Even when our lives seem bleak and it doesn't look like God is coming through for us in the ways that he's promised, it's important for us to pause and remember. Just because we can't see how his plan is unfolding in a moment, just because we don't understand all the details of what's happening in us and around us at any given time, it doesn't mean he's not working. He's faithful to his promise. So Mary treasured these things. She pondered what was yet to come. Had to have been a wonderful thing. Well, the story concludes in verses 17 and 18 and 20. Danielle, would you read those for us? Luke 2, 17, 18, and 20. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Remarkable, remarkable way to end the story. I think one of the things that's most intriguing about Western Christianity, in which you and I live, is how few people, how few Christians, actually ever tell anybody else about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a sad reality. I ran across an article just this week, and here was the title of the article. Sharing faith is increasingly optional for Christians. Now, that caught my attention. As I read through it, it was a, they were reporting on a, a survey that had been done by the Barna Group that was a follow-up from a survey done way back in 1993. And they were asking people who, who identified as Christians questions about evangelism and about telling other people about the good news of Christ. 
And it was pretty remarkable what they found, at least in the change in responses from 1993 to 2018. When asked, when given this statement and asked, do you agree with it? Here was the statement. Every Christian has a responsibility to share their faith. In 1993, 89% of people, the believers in the survey, agreed with that. 89%. I still think that's kind of low, right? If they read a Bible at some point. By 2018, that number had gone down to 65%. In just 25 years, 24% less. The trend is in the, you know, the direction of more and more, that's the title, more, fewer and fewer Christians think it's important to share their faith. That's the title, it's now optional. Given this statement, during the last 12 months, I explained my religious beliefs to someone who had different beliefs and hoped that they might accept Jesus Christ as their savior. Out of born again Christians, only 54% answered in the affirmative. Basically half. An interesting note from that survey was this. Which generation do you think in that survey has in recent years been the only gener generation among evangelical Christians where evangelism is on the rise? Boomers, busters, millennials, Gen Z? It was millennials. Millennials who get a pretty bad rap from generations that are older than them for playing video games and such are the only generation where evangelism is on the rise. An interesting sort of a note. The authors summarized this. They said this, the truth is most Christians are busy with other things. Day-to-day -day normal life, jobs, kids, budgets, sports, weather, and what's premiering on Netflix this week. None of that's bad, but the unfortunate reality is that most adults don't seem to connect their everyday experiences with their faith. Or at least, they aren't talking about it if they do. The glaring reality from the surveys is that most Christians don't talk to anybody else about their faith. It's a stark contrast to their reaction and response to these shepherds, isn't it? I mean, we see two distinct reactions from them at the end of this text, right? First, we're told that they witnessed. They were so moved and so changed by this whole experience, they literally could not help telling everybody in their path what they had just experienced. They didn't need any particular training. They didn't have the entire picture of salvation even. They didn't know how this was all gonna work out. They couldn't explain the Trinity. They couldn't explain how a baby could be both God and, and man all at the same time. But all they could do is tell anybody who would listen what they had seen, what they had heard, and what they had personally experienced. And you literally could not shut these men up on their trip home. They're telling everybody, anybody who'll listen, what they saw and what they heard. They couldn't restrain themselves. It was the greatest news that they had ever heard. And they wanted everyone to know. And they wanted everyone to meet the Savior. In a world where people didn't really care and nobody was really paying attention, they didn't stop telling people about it. They witnessed to anybody and they worshiped, right? That's the two things that they did. They're glorifying God and they're telling everybody what happened. I mean, worship just overflows out of a heart that's redeemed. Isn't that right? I mean, when you've, been, when you've met Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and he's reconciled you to God by his blood and his death on the cross, when you've been changed and you've, you've been impacted by the gospel, it changes you, and your heart is filled with joy and gratitude that overflows in worship, in worship. I think it's impossible to be a sinner saved by grace, by the blood of Christ, and not be a worshiper and not enjoy worshiping, and not find joy and pleasure in celebrating what, what God has done through Christ, and not want to be with God's people, glorifying him every chance we get for the salvation that he brings. These are the two characteristics really that should mark every, every believer, right? Witness and worship. Whatever we do in our lives, and we do a lot of things, Telling others about Christ and glorifying God for what he's done in saving us should be two of the highest priorities on our calendar. And yet you know the reality like I do. Life presses in on us. Things happen. 
We get busy. We go through hard times. We get sort of chronologically distant from the moment of salvation. And the priority of these things begin to fade. And all of a sudden, we realize weeks and months, even years have gone by. We've never told anybody about Christ and what he's done for us. Before we know it, weeks have gone by, months have gone by, maybe even years have gone by since we've gathered with God's people with joy and gratitude and worship. As we wrap up our time of looking at this this morning, and really as we wrap up 2021 and we look forward toward 2022, I think the ending of the story is a great place for us to pause and to reflect on our own lives in those two areas, right? Worship and witness. As we think about making sort of changes in our life in the new year, I wonder if those are two areas of your life that need some adjustment for the new year. The priority of telling people about Christ and the priority of worshiping. Will you reflect on that as we finish this last song this morning and as we conclude our time of worship? As you're singing, just think and silently pray in your own heart, Lord, may this year be a year where these two things take priority in my life. Help me, Lord, not to let other things that may be good but not great squeeze out worship and squeeze out witness. Maybe it's a prayer or something along the lines of, Lord, help me not to be afraid to tell somebody about Jesus because I'm scared they might not believe it or because I'm scared they might think I'm weird. I don't know whatever that looks like in your own life, however the Lord impresses it upon your heart. Think about those two things and set those as priorities in your heart as we stand and sing great spiritual, go tell it on the mountain. Let's stand together and sing. families of rest and recuperation from a busy season and may you reflect this afternoon on your heart worship and witness for a new year let's pray together lord jesus you're wonderful beyond our imagination lord you've, you've revealed yourself to us in your word and you still 
are far more than what we could ever hope for and dream of or even imagine. Your glory and your majesty. Lord, what a day it's gonna be when we see you face to face, when we meet you in all of your wonder and all of your beauty and find the fulfillment of our faith in your presence. Lord, until that time, may the wonder of your birth never leave our hearts. Don't let it fade, Lord. Don't let it drift into the sort of the background of our mind. May this year be the year where we worship you with all of our heart. May this year be the year where we tell somebody else the good news that a Savior's been born, Christ the Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I bless you as you go.